few hundred years ago, there's a story told about a group of fishermen who were visiting a Scottish seaside inn, and they had got done fishing for the day. They'd come to this inn to kind of settle the rest of their day and, and eat their final meal and kind of call it quits for the day. And as they were sitting down to get afternoon tea and their, their dinner, they begin to tell stories of the fish that they caught that day. I don't know if you've ever been a part of, of telling stories about fish, but it's probably the most over-exaggerated stories ever. Uh, you, you might start actually catching something that's more the size of a goldfish, but somehow it ends up being the size of a shark when you're done telling the story. And that's no different. It's, it's been throughout human history. This is the case. We always like to exaggerate our fish stories. And so these fishermen were talking about the fish they caught that day and how big they were. And one of the gentlemen uh, it kind of was, was showing uh, by an expression of his arm length how big the fish was. In the, the process of doing this, the lady who was serving tea was walking by. And when, when he did this, he knocked the teapot out of the lady's hand and it splashed against the wall. And so now there's this tiny, dark, ugly stain on the backdrop of this whitewashed wall. And so the innkeeper comes in and he's really frustrated with what happened. And he proclaims that I'm going to have to now redo the entire wall. I'm going to start over, repaint the entire thing. The stain's not ever going to come out. And then there's this gentleman in the corner that's kind of been sitting in the corner. Nobody knows who he is. And he proclaims, not so fast. I think I can fix this. And they all look at him because they had no clue who this gentleman was or what he was doing there. And he walks over and he says, if you let me work with this stain and you approve of my work, you won't have to repaint the wall. And so he picks up his little black box that he had with him and he walks over to the wall and he starts bringing out these paintbrushes and these pencils and oils and pigments and he begins to sketch and then color and fill in shading around the stain. And before you know it, what once was just a little tiny dark stain on this wall was a masterpiece of this, this stag with this magnificent rack in the backdrop of this wilderness. The gentleman finished painting. He signed his signature to the bottom of the painting. He pays for his meal and he leaves. And then keeper is overwhelmed with what just happened. And so he goes to look and he sees that the signature was by a man named Sir Edwin Landseer, who was a well-known famous artist. The point of the story is this, that when we read this text and Jesus is talking about this idea of us bearing fruit, it's the same ideas as the story that our lives may seem very insignificant right now. Your life may seem nothing more than a dark stain on a whitewashed wall. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just want to erase your life, but he wants to make something beautiful out of you. In the same way, this painter took something so insignificant and painted the most beautiful masterpiece possible. The Lord wants to do the same thing in your life today. He wants to take what might seem insignificant, what might seem as a disappointment, what might seem as a failure, what might seem just as a dark tea stain on a wall, and he wants to transform you into something magnificent. And Jesus is talking to his disciples here in John 15, and we have to remember that if we're going to fully understand what he's saying here, we have to put ourselves in the audience. We have to kind of imagine ourselves sitting there under the teachings of Jesus, because when he's teaching this, he's teaching this to a particular people at a particular time in history. And John is an eyewitness historian writing this story of what Jesus is teaching. 
And he used this language, right? This imagery of a vine and a vine dresser and branches. And if, if we just pulled this out of the Bible, we might have a hard time fully understanding all that he's trying to say to us. But the reality is this language, this agricultural language is used throughout the Old Testament. And so when these Jews who are following Christ are hearing this story, it would resonate with them. They would understand their beginning in the Old Testament. Many times in the Bible, when there's this imagery of a vine, it's used to describe God's people, the nation of Israel. You can look in Psalms 80, verses 8 through 9. The Lord brought out a vine out of Egypt. He drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep roots and filled the land. In Isaiah 27, the word of the Lord says this, in the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the earth with fruit. And so Israel was, was known to be this vine that was supposed to be fruitful for the Lord. But the flip side is when you read the Old Testament, you see that in most cases, it's used in a very negative way. It's very, used in a very negative way because Israel failed to do what they were supposed to do. And so you see in Jeremiah 2, 21, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? See, God's people were supposed to be a vine that produced something beautiful, that produced fruit. But instead, constantly throughout the Old Testament, they'd become useless. They'd become wild and they'd become dried up. Isaiah 5 says it this way, what more was there to do for my vineyard, says the Lord? When I look at it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedges and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned and briars and thorns shall grow. And I also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And so you see this imagery of a vine that fails to produce fruit. And what happens is it brings judgment upon the people of Israel and enters Jesus into this story. And he says, I'm not just a vine, I am the true vine. This is a declaration of Jesus coming for us. He's saying here that, that there's hope in Christ. What the people of Israel were unable to do, he's able to do. When they were unable to produce the fruit in the way that pleases God, Jesus, the true vine, can, and he will. So this imagery represents hope, hope that we have a mediator for life, hope that we have a God who has intervened in human history so that we can be fruitful and be something beautiful for our Lord, our Lord God. And so when you read this story of Jesus being the true vine, I think the, the crux of the matter here is that to be Christian means that we bear fruit. To be a, a follower of Christ means that there is fruitfulness being produced in our lives. Now notice there are two different types of branches here. There's the father, the vine dresser, Jesus, the true vine. And then there are branches that are producing fruit and those that aren't. And I don't want us to get caught up in, well, 
these, view, these branches that are not producing fruit now that are tossed away and are now burned, were they ever in the vine? Were they ever in Christ or they're not? I, I think the crux of the matter is not necessarily were they ever fruitful in the first place, but that the true testimony to a being a Christian is that you are fruitful. The true sign of a Christ follower is someone who's abiding in Christ and therefore producing fruitfulness. And so what I want us to do today is really ask the question, how can we produce fruit? How do we produce fruit? I think the moral of the story here is that we produce fruit when we abide in Christ. We produce fruit when we abide in the vine, when we stay, when we remain in Christ. There's three different ways I want us to, to see in this passage that we are able to produce fruit. Look at verse 2. The Father does this beautiful act of pruning. It says, Every branch that is in me, that abides in me, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And so the first work that we have to abide in is his work of pruning. We abide in the work of pruning. Now, a few years back, I was talking with a guy who owned a vineyard and uh, kind of trying to to pick his brain about what it looks like uh, to grow these vines in a vineyard. And it's a very tedious process. Year one, they plant the sprout and the sprout starts to grow. And by the time it gets done in year one, they cut it back. They do what's called pruning. They cut it back. In year two, the vine grows a little bit bigger and they do the same thing again. They cut it back. And you're thinking, okay, when, when are we going to see the fruit of this, right? It's a long process. Year three, it finally starts to grow some fruit and yet they don't harvest it. They cut it back again. And finally in year four is when the fruit, the grapes are ready to be harvested. In the same way, we need to understand that our father in heaven is the vine dresser. He owns the vineyard and he knows better than we do of how to produce fruit. We have to understand that fruitfulness in our lives may not come overnight. It may be a slow process. That's why pruning is important. That's why this idea of the father working in our lives to make space so that we can then produce more fruit. You might think of it this way. When I was in high school, right up the road here at Valdosta High School, uh, my ninth grade year, I remember I was, I was trying to work really hard to make the varsity wrestling team. And at the end of every practice, we would have this intense conditioning time to condition our bodies, to get us ready for the match ahead. And there's really two different things that I was thinking about. There's two goals at the end of that wrestling practice. One was to cut back weight so that I can make my weight class. And the second was to strengthen my body because I was 170 pounds soaking wet and I needed some muscle. And so that was the goal. It was to strengthen my body and it was to cut back the weight so that I can make the weight classes. So I'd get to the end of this practice and we had this old room that was still the same that it was in the seventies probably. And had a really low roof and uh, they would blast these old heaters in there. So the temperature would get really hot in there and you're sweating and you're running around and you're, you're conditioning your body. You're trying to get to this point at the end of the practice. And then we start doing these different like timed interval workouts and I remember doing push-ups and how it was just, you would get to the end of the time that you were supposed to be doing those push-ups. I just remember in my head, my coach saying, one more, one more. And it was this process of even at the very end, as I was pushing as hard as I could and probably not moving much, trying to get that last push-up in while I'm dripping sweat. And that moment, in that tough moment, 
was when my body was actually experiencing the most growth. It was during those tough moments when, when I was cutting back, when I was really stressing in that moment that my body began to produce what it needed to produce. In the same way, although pruning might not sound like a blessing, it is one of the greatest blessings we have in the Christian life. The Lord uses all kinds of circumstances to help us grow. It might be times of suffering that we have to go through. It might be times that we just have to reorient our schedules, realize that we're too busy here, we're spending too much time here. It might be a change of scenery where we have to move into a new location. It might be new challenges like becoming a first-time parent where the Lord is using those opportunities to produce fruitfulness in your life. When we think about fruit, I think often of, of Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think about producing fruit. I think of these things. These things that are supposed to be produced in us as we walk in the Spirit. And notice when, when Paul's writing in Galatians 5, he doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, right? It's singular. He says the fruit of the Spirit. One of the reasons I believe he, he mentions this is because if we're growing in one of these areas, we have to be growing in all these areas. And here's what I mean by that. There are many days where I lack patience. And when I lack patience, I'm not a very loving person. In the days where I'm not a very loving person, I'm not experiencing much joy. In the days where I lack joy in life, I'm probably not very kind to people. In the days where I lack kindness, I'm probably not doing a lot of good things. In the days where I lack goodness, there's probably some unfaithfulness in my life. In the days where I'm unfaithful are days that I'm not very gentle. They're all tied together. You can't say that you're doing great in one area because you might be lacking in another. Producing fruit of the Spirit is working on all these areas. And so the Father's work of pruning is this, that he's going to cut back in our lives areas that are not producing fruit to make space so that we can grow more into the image of Jesus Christ. Because here's the reality. None of us would stand up here today and say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing really good in all these areas. I'm just killing it, Wesley. I'm just knocking out of the ballpark. I am the best lover, the best joyful person. The, I do the most good you could ever imagine. I'm just killing in all these categories. That's probably not reality for any of us in this room. And that's okay. Because the father as the good vine dresser knows that it takes time pr to produce this fruit in us. That there's moments where it's gonna take time to grow in these areas. And there's moments where, you know what? We're gonna have to just have grace for ourselves knowing that we weren't who we once were, but we're not quite where we want to be. And where we want to be is, is looking like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect peace, perfect love, perfect joy, perfect kindness, perfect goodness, perfect faithfulness, perfect gentleness, and has perfect self-control. And so if we want to be fruitful we must be open to the fact that Jesus wants to join with us in this idea of union with Christ, to abide in us, to work in us. And we must be open to the fact that the Father wants to prune us. He wants to do the hard work of cutting areas in our lives where we're not being fruitful to make room so that we can grow more into the image of Christ.
The second is this, that we want to abide in his presence. Look at verse three. Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we must abide in the presence of Jesus. He says here that you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. We just saw a a symbolic representation of that cleansing in baptism. That the good news is this, that if you are a believer in Christ, you are clean. Not because of anything you've done, but because of who he is and what he has done for you. Think of the people that Jesus is speaking to right now. When you think of your own life, you think, you know, maybe I'm not where I need to be right now. Maybe I'm really struggling. Maybe I, I have a lot of failures in life. I just don't know if the Lord can use me. I don't know if he can, he can produce fruit in me. Think about who he's speaking to right now. He's less than 24 hours away of being crucified. Most likely he's about to enter into his trial and be tried and then crucified. And in that moment, there's one of his disciples who is listening intently to what he's saying here named Peter. And Peter, a man who will resolve to never deny Christ, will within 24 hours deny him. Like it doesn't get any lower than that. You ever try to keep a New Year's resolutions before? And maybe, maybe you did it for a week, maybe you did it for a month, maybe you did it for a whole year and that was great. Peter couldn't do it for 24 hours. Like he resolved to never deny Christ and within 24 hours, he will deny Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. And in his shame, he will run away. And I know that's natural for us, right? When we offend, we, we feel like we need to run away. We feel like we need to, the one we've offended, we need to get away from them. And that's exactly what Peter does. He realizes that he has offended Christ by denying him and he runs. But the reality is here in what Christ says that we are clean, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. So if you're a Christian, when God sees you, he sees the perfect obedience of his son, Jesus. Not your failures, not what you're guilty of, but he sees a reflection of Christ who is perfect in all his ways. And so the right response isn't to run from Jesus, but instead embrace him. And Peter does do this. In, in John 21, we see that Peter is in the boat with the other fishermen, right? Because the disciples, that's, what, that's who they were. They were fishermen. So when, when Christ died and, and, and they were kind of lost in this point of waiting for him to return and didn't know if he was going to return, they went back to their old ways. And so they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And then Christ appears in his resurrected body on the, on the, the shore of the sea. And Peter sees him from the boat. And he doesn't say, oh, hey, Jesus, let me row the boat in. No, he takes out his, his outer garment. He jumps into the sea and he runs to Jesus. That's the response we should have. That Christ has cleansed us. And there it is in his presence when we abide in him that we are welcome and we are delighted in. There's no reason to avoid God because you're clean because of what Christ has done for you. We remain in his presence because that is where we find acceptance. That is where we find forgiveness. So if you want to be someone who bears fruit, you have to realize that there's grace for you, Christian. There's grace. 
there's going to be times of failure. There's going to be times where we're going to be like Peter and we're going to resolve to never do this and then we're going to do it anyways. We're going to get entangled in that sin once again. And yet Jesus is saying that abiding in my presence means that there's forgiveness for you. That if you have believed on me, you have to realize that you are clean, that I have cleansed you and that I want you to remain in me. And so we abide in Christ, not running away from him, not trying to avoid him, not trying to, to think that we can clean ourselves up and then come back to him, but remaining in him, knowing that he loves and cares for us even when we fail and make mistakes. Thirdly, we want to abide in his love today. Abide in his love. Look at verse eight. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that your joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so he uses this language of abiding in the love that he has for his father. He says that I have loved my father and that father's love is in me. So therefore abide in my love as well. And he says this, that we, we do it by keeping his commandments, that they're, they're interchangeable, they're, they're together. That if you love Christ, you will obey Christ. Now we don't want to get this twisted though. There's a cycle here. The, the twisted perspective would be this. If I obey his commands, then he'll love me. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that if you obey him, then you earn his love. What he's saying is this, because he loves, because he has loved us, we desire obedience. He's saying that if we abide in his love, if we accept the love that he has for us, then we are free to obey him. One is captivating, one is liberating. The one that's captivating is the one that says, uh, you, gotta, you gotta obey Christ and then you can earn his love. That's captivating. That's never gonna free you up. You're always gonna be trying to do more and you're never going to be able to do it. No matter how moral you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how many times you come to church, no matter how much good you do, you're always gonna fall short of that standard. The other one's liberating. It's because when we abide in love of Christ and we realize that we are cleansed by him, we're free to obey him. We're freed up to want to please him, to want to obey him. Think of it this way. When, when I got married, <clears throat> marriage teaches you a lot about life. <laughs> Amen. Um, so one of the things that I learned quickly was that there are things that my wife would like me to do that I didn't do. It was simple things, you know, like maybe I would get out of a, you know, take a shower and I'll dry off and I would just leave the towel on the floor and then walk out, you know, and, and she's quick to point these things out in a good way. You know, it's kind of like, Hey, Wesley, what's that? It's a towel. <laughs> what's it doing there? You know, it's just that, that simple, like trying to train me, like, hey, you know, <laughs> does it go there? Okay, that's what I'm trying to get at. And so the next time, Lord willing, that when I got out of the shower, I wouldn't leave the towel on the ground or, or I wouldn't leave the dishes next to the sink instead of putting them in the sink. Whatever the little task was, uh, she was there to, to teach me subtly what I should do. But the reality is this, I didn't do those tasks so that I could earn my wife's love. I did them because I knew it pleased her. I, the obedience was done out of a love I already had for her. 
not to try to earn her love. Uh, putting the towel up on the rack wasn't going, to, wasn't going to make me love her that much more. It wasn't trying to earn her love by doing it, but it was already because I had that love for her in my heart that it pleased me to obey. In the same way, we should have such a captivating love of Christ and what he has done for us that it drives us to obedience. That as we grow in our love for Christ, we will then grow in our obedience for Christ. They're, they're connected. The more we want to love Christ, the more we want to obey him. And so here's a question I think we have to ask ourselves. What creates love for Jesus in our lives? What's stirring your affections for Christ? What is in your life right now that's causing you to love him more? Because the more you love him, the more you're going to want to obey him. And the more you obey him, the more fruitfulness will come. And so let's think about that. What are some ways to create love for Jesus in our lives? Because here's the formula. We need to increase our love for Jesus. We need to pay attention to the things that do that. And then we also need to pay attention to the things that decrease our love for Jesus that are in our lives. Because there are things in our lives right now that if we were to examine ourselves, we would realize that they're not causing us to love Jesus anymore. In fact, they might be hindrance our love for Jesus. And that's where the Father comes in and does this beautiful work of pruning in our lives, cleansing us from the areas of our lives which, which we might not be faithful right now, in areas of our lives where we might not really doing things that are producing love for Jesus. And so here's a few things that I just wrote down based off of this text and even in my own life that stir my affections for the Lord. Number one, studying the word of God is very basic. Studying the word of God. He says here that verse 10, if we keep his commandments, we will abide in his love. To know the commandments of God is to know the word of God. If we're going to keep his commandments, we're going to have to know what we believe. Studying the word of God is not just something I do out of habit because I'm a pastor. It's not just something I do because it's, it's, it's a checklist of a good thing that I should do as a religious person. Because the song we just sang said that there's nowhere else we can go that has the words of eternal life than Christ, than the word of God himself made flesh. There's nowhere else we can go to find the answers we need for life than the word of God. And so are you carving out time in your daily life to read the word of God, to study it, to try to apply it to your life, to try to dig deep into the things of God. Is that a part of your daily routine? Because if it's not, it may be an area where you can stir your affections for Jesus. The second is participating in prayer. Talking with Jesus stirs your affections for Jesus. Look at verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified. So you hear that. Asking of the Lord glorifies him. When you pray, he is satisfied, happy, and delighted in that you are talking with him. He is glorified when you ask. When you abide in Christ and you ask, he is pleased. The Lord wants you to talk to him. He wants to have you communing with him. He wants to talk with you as his children. And so are you praying? Are you consistent in a prayer life? For me, it's simply, I travel a lot. I'm on the road a lot. I live in DC, which has terrible, terrible traffic. And so uh, I've been amazed since I've been back just how easy it is to get to places around here. 
to, to go to a grocery store. It's, it's, you know, it could be a 30 minute drive. It's only four miles, you know, <laughs> just a matter of how the traffic patterns are working out the time. And so there's a lot of time in a car. I drive around the beltway and it might be two hours to get 15 miles and I'm stuck in a car for a long time. So what I do, I turn the radio off. I turn the podcast off and I just talk to the father. That's my time. I know I'm going to have that time every day. And that's my time to talk to the Lord. Where is that in your life? Is there a specific place, a specific time? Is there a specific attitude you're carrying every day where you say, Lord, I want to commune with you. I know you are delighted when your children speak to you. I would encourage you in a very practical sense to, to make out some kind of time or space for prayer. If, you, if you're honest with yourself and you say, you know, I don't pray a lot. I just don't. Find a room in your home. Find a, a, a time in your schedule and just say, I'm going to start here. I'm going to start here with 15 to 20 minutes. I'm going to get in this closet. I'm going to get in this room. I'm just going to pray. Start somewhere small like that. Participate in prayer. The next is have joy in life. The Christian life is meant to be joyful. Look again in verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, the purpose of his message here is this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I've learned in my brief life that there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is temporary, it's fragile. It's determined based off of our external circumstances we face. For instance, I get up in the morning and the first thing I get to do is I get to go pick up my 11-month-old daughter and it is the most joyful thing in the world, especially since her first word is dada. And so I walk in the room and she just is standing up on her crib. She just goes, dada. It's the greatest thing in the world. It brights up my day. I'm so excited. I'm so happy when the day starts. And then I go and I put her down for, to, to eat some, some breakfast and I open my email and I check my email for my work day. And happiness has gone quick, right? I see what I got to do and then I got to see how much I got to drive and then it just, it spirals. Happiness is so temporary. It's based off of all of our external circumstances that we face in a day. But joy is something so much deeper. So we only have joy because of Christ. Joy comes with our unshakable confidence that no matter what the day brings, we will have Christ. At the end of the day, no matter what you face, you know for certain that you have Christ. At the end of life, no matter what suffering you've had to endure, you know for certain that you have Christ. That's joy. Joy is knowing that no matter what our circumstances are in life, we have a Savior who loves us, who cares for us, who's for us, and who will always be with us. And who is making a way for us to experience joy everlasting. And so we want to participate in this kind of lifestyle. This is what stirs affections for Jesus, is knowing that you're a joyful person knowing that the promises in Romans 8 that he is working all things for our good is true. Knowing that the promise at the end of Romans 8, that if he is for us, nothing can be against us is true. That nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God, that is true. Knowing those things are true stirs up joy in my heart. Knowing that no matter what goes on in my day, whatever circumstances I face, I know at the end of the day that he still loves me and he's still for me and that I still have Christ. The next is participating in community, loving one another. Verse 12 says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Are you in community? 
If this is your first time visiting this church, I would ask you to, to come back again. If you don't have a church home, make this one your home. You're not meant to live life isolated from other believers. The Christian life is a life built in community, a life where we are loving one another, participating in one another's lives. In the same way, if you're thinking, what's lacking? Why am I not creating love for Jesus in my life? Why do I not feel like I love for Jesus? Are you around other believers? Because they're there for encouragement. They're there to lift your spirits. They're there to walk right through the flames with you. They're there to be by your side, no matter what you go through in life. We need one another. The Lord has built us in such a way where we need relationships with one another. And so I'd ask you if, if you are seeing where, where might love be lacking for Jesus in my life, is it because you're not in community with other believers? Are you not in some kind of gathering, whether it's a community group or a Sunday school class or, or a, a small group of people who disciple one another, whatever it is, be in community with other believers, love one another. And the last I'll, I'll leave with this is what creates love for Jesus is being a witness to the world. If you look down in verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my father's name, he may give it to you. The commandment is to go and to bear fruit. It's to be a witness to the watching world. <laughs> if you're thinking maybe, maybe there's areas in my life where I'm not loving Jesus I would ask you, are you letting your light shine forth? Are, are you being a witness to the world? When you go to your workplace on Monday, do people know you're a Christian? Do you have to ponder that question when you interact with people? Do they know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Or have I demonstrated in some way that I love and follow Jesus? He wants to use you. He wants to allow you to be a witness that shines forth the light of Christ. And so I'd ask you to be a witness to the world today. So here's how we're gonna end going back to our painting at the beginning. Wherever you are in life right now, I don't know what you're dealing with. Maybe you feel like you're a disappointment. Maybe you're kind of like Peter. You just, you, you can't get it together. You've denied Christ. You're wanting to run. You're wanting to, to run as far away from him as possible. Whatever you are right now, know this, that the Lord can use you. He's not, he's not afraid to use you. I promise you there's been worse people in history. He's not afraid to use you and he will use you. He wants to use you. And to bear fruit is to abide in Christ. It is to trust that Christ has cleansed you from all of your sins. It is to lean on him knowing that there's nothing I can do in my own power that's good enough. But fully relying on Christ to be my savior and my Lord. It's to then trust that the father has your best interests at heart knowing that he is working in your life every single day, pruning you back, even when you might not be able to realize it at this moment, but he's working in you so that you can be fruitful and knowing that he loves you and that you can abide in his love and continue to show that love by participating in prayer with him, by reading his word, by being a witness to the world, by loving one another. I pray that today we would find ourselves a fruitful people people who love Jesus and who desire to abide in his vine. And then what that would bring about in our lives is a people full of life and of joy. Let's pray for that today. Father, I thank you so much for this time we've had together. 
I'm thankful that, Lord, even though it's, it's tough, it's painful sometimes, that you're pruning us back so that we can be more fruitful, so that we can bear fruit, be a witness to the world around us, so that we can grow in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that you care for us so much, Lord, that you're willing to die for us, that you're willing to sacrifice your all so that we can have peace, so that we can have joy. I'm thankful that through your blood, you cleanse us. And it is only through your blood that we are cleansed. So Lord, help us today. Help us be a fruitful people. Help us abide in you so that Lord, we will continue in the faith, that we continue to be fruitful, we continue to be joyful, that we continue to be a people, even here in Valdosta, Georgia, that shines the light of Christ into the surrounding areas. Be with us today, Lord. Heal us where we need healing. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Save us, Lord, today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.